Hello, and welcome to FDI Cybersecurity's podcast series, The Expert Briefing. My name is Ayala Mora Prega. I'm a director specializing in governance, risk, and compliance within FTI Consulting's UK cybersecurity practice based in London. Throughout this podcast series, our experts discuss the latest issues and trends impacting the world of cybersecurity. And today, we'll be talking about the latest iteration of the Network and Information Security Directive, more commonly referred to as NIS2. For this episode, I'm really thrilled to be joined by our external guests from Pinsent Masons, David McElwain and Stuart Davey, and my colleague, Dave Harvey. I'll let my guests introduce themselves. Hello, I'm David McElwain. I'm head of cyber at the international law firm, Pinsent Masons. And we provide three primary cyber services to clients, including cyber readiness services, so getting clients in a better position to deal with any cyber incident that may occur, Instant response services, assisting clients to deal with a cyber incident in a manner which mitigates their legal exposure, and dealing with regulatory investigations and litigation that may arise following a cyber incident. We have a big cyber team and provide a truly global service. Hello there, I'm Stuart Davey. I'm a partner at Pinsent Masons and, and part of that cyber team that David's just mentioned. Uh, by background, I'm a technology litigator, but I have increasingly focused my practice over recent years on dealing with cybersecurity issues. And I do that for clients from all sectors, dealing with cyber incidents when they occur, uh, including dealing with the reporting obligations to um, uh, privacy regulators and other regulators. But I have a particular focus on the energy sector and the infrastructure sector, and therefore two sectors very much impacted by the NIS regime that we're discussing today. And we as a firm over the past four or so years have advised a number of clients in the oil and gas sector, um, a leading UK airport, uh, a UK airline, various digital service providers on understanding their obligations under the NIS regime. Hi, I'm Dave Harvey. I'm a Managing Director and I lead the UK cybersecurity practice for FTI. I have over 20 years experience in cybersecurity in both the public and private sectors, advising multinational corporations and risk. At FTI Consulting, I lead global teams that handle large and complex cybersecurity readiness engagements, advising clients on cybersecurity risk, as well as leading incident response and investigatory matters, such as ransomware, data breaches, and mission state intrusions. Thank you all. Um, I really can't think of better guests to have this discussion with, and I'm really looking forward to hearing more about how all of your experience inform your perspectives on this directive and its implications. So with introductions done, let's kick the conversation off and take our listeners back to where all of this began. The original NIST directive was released in 2018. Stuart, for anyone who might be unfamiliar with this piece of regulation, would you be able to explain why it was introduced and what it mandated? Sure. Um, and I think the sort of being unfamiliar with this bit of legislation is quite telling. Um, I think one of my observations on the NIS regime is that it has flown under the radar. Um, it was implemented um, certainly in the UK at the same time in the same month as the GDPR. Um, we all know about the GDPR. Everybody has got a view on the GDPR. Um, one of my favourite slides I used to give at training um, uh, presentations and the like was that at one stage in time in May 2018, um, Google search hits for GDPR were bigger than for Beyonce. Um, but I don't think that's the case for NIS. Um, few people know about NIS or understand its intricacies. 
but it is a really important bit of legislation. It introduces very significant and important um, obligations in relation to cybersecurity in those industries to which it um, applies. Um, and the NIS directive, so it started as a NIS directive under uh, EU law, it was implemented in different jurisdictions over different periods of time. Um, but what it does is effectively two things, is it sets out a framework for um, how member states should set up national, national frameworks for dealing with cybersecurity issues. So it mandates that member states set up a um, national cybersecurity strategy, um, set up uh, computer incident response teams. So in the UK, that is the National Cyber Security Centre to provide early warnings and alerts about cyber related issues. It also requires there to be competent authorities um, which effectively manage and regulate those organisations that are caught by NIS. Um, and those competent authorities are responsible for setting guidance, um, steering and regulating all the organisations that are um, caught within their, within their sector, establishing identification thresholds, dealing with reporting requirements, and so on. But for organisations that are impacted by NIS, it also imposes quite important um, cybersecurity related provisions. So under the NIS directive, there would be two different types of organization that would be caught. There were operators of essential services, which effectively is critical national infrastructure. Um, and there would be digital service providers, which are cloud computing, online marketplaces, uh, and so on. Um, and what effectively the uh, NIS obligations require is that organizations caught by the regulations need to put in place appropriate technical and organizational measures to ensure that the systems upon which the essential service that they're concerned with are secure. And then if there is an incident that affects those systems, they have obligations to report it to the competent authorities. Um, and there is a whole um, enforcement mechanism built into the NIS regime, including enforcement action, powers of inspection, and quite stringent penalties. Um, and, and those penalties vary depending upon which member state and how each member state implemented the NIS directive. And maybe we'll come on in a minute to talk about why we're now moving to a different phase, the second phase of the NIS regime under, under NIS 2, but certainly the different ways in which different member states implemented the directive and the um, obligations within it explain some of the reasons for, for NIS 2 coming in. I'll pause there for, for breath. Thank you, Stuart. That was some really comprehensive explanation of the original directive. So I suppose the next logical question is why the change to NIS 2 and why now? And it might be a good idea to start with just some opinions and some insight into what the substantive changes between the directives actually are. So I think one of the one of the ways to assess what, why there are changes happening now is to consider whether the original NIS directive worked as intended. Um, so in the UK, the UK government had a, a post-implementation review um, that was built into the, the statutory process for, for the NIS regime being put in place. Um, and that review concluded that it was effectively too early to tell, this was a couple of years ago, whether or not the NIS directive was, was, was delivering on its objectives. Certainly, if you compare it in terms of incident reporting, very, very different to the regime under the GDPR. So in the, in the UK, for example, um, after the GDPR was implemented, there were sort of tens of thousands or around 10,000 personal data breaches being reported to the Information Commissioner's Office. Under the original NIS consultation, it was estimated that maybe about 1,000 annual reports 
But as of a couple of years ago, the, the actual number of reports on an annualized basis was 39, so double digits. So it was indicating that the number of reports being made to the competent authorities was much, much lower than the equivalent regime for personal data. Um, there were also concerns about the way in which uh, NIS was implemented across the different member states. So as, as I mentioned, there are different penalties in place. So in the UK, for example, uh, there is a, a 17 million pound fine available to competent authorities. Um, in other jurisdictions, the fine mechanisms are much, much lower. In the UK, it's a civil um, penalty. In other jurisdictions in the EU, there were criminal penalties associated with a breach. So one of the main drivers, I think, for um, NIS2 being uh, introduced and coming into to effect when it does is to bring about wider coordination and removing that divergence across EU member states to try to put in place more similar provisions across each of the member states. Um, there was also divergence in the number of sectors in which um, NIS was applied that was left to the member states to decide how to do that. So again, in the UK, for example, financial services isn't included in the scope of the original NIS uh, regulations, but in other member states, financial services was. So what the um, NIS2 is trying to do is, again, remove some of that divergence. And in doing so, one of the ways to achieve that is to abolish that distinction between an operator essential service and a um, digital services provider. Um, but the way in which they then do that is they put in place two different new categories, essential services, and that's similar kind of things we've, we've seen before, transport, energy, infrastructure, and so on, and then important services. So that broadens the definition. It includes things like manufacturing facilities and postal services. Um, so a different way of approaching the number of organizations that are impacted by, by NIS. And again, they're trying to achieve more EU-wide cooperation. So there is going to be a European Cyber Crisis Liaison Organization Network or the cyclone network to try to coordinate and remove some of that divergence. So from an EU level, quite significant changes being proposed that will harmonize the way in which security is dealt with and regulated across the EU. Thank you, Stuart. One of the things that we will definitely be on the lookout for is how well this streamlining actually works in practice. Um, David, coming to you now, we live in a post-Brexit world. How, if at all, in your opinion, is this new NIS2 directive going to impact organisations who are based in the UK? So the EU NIS2 directive will not have direct effect in the UK, but the EU NIS2 directive does have more broad extraterritorial effect. So as a result, certain providers of digital infrastructure, of digital services, who do not have an EU establishment but offer services in the EU will also fall under the scope of the proposed EU NIS2 directive. And this will affect DNS service providers, TLD name registries, cloud computing service providers, data center service providers, and content delivery network providers, as well as providers of online marketplaces, online search engines, and social networking services platforms. So not directly effective, but can affect if you are delivering services into the EU. In addition, the UK is looking to reform its own NIS regime, so the UK NIS regime. And a recent consultation by DCMS, which closed in April this year, sought views on how the UK could improve cyber resilience of business and organisations. And the proposal suggests the changes to current law, such as 
the expansion of the definition of digital service providers. So currently this only captures search engines, online marketplaces and cloud computing providers. But the proposal is to include managed service providers, which would be broadly defined and incorporate a wider set of infrastructure based services and data centers. So effectively, if you outsource your, your IT, the IT services provider may well in the future be caught by the NIS regime in the UK. And the intention is that this would be on a risk based approach. So as to limit the application of the rules only to those who would have the most substantial impact on the UK's resilience, should there be a disruption to their service. Um, but this would mean that providers of critical outsourced IT services would likely be caught by the new UK NIS regime. And there's also the intention to expand the incident reporting requirements to cover incidents that do not affect the continuity of the service directly, but which has a significant impact on the availability, integrity or confidentiality of the systems, and that would, could cause or threaten to cause substantial disruption to the service. So ransomware, for example, even if it does not affect the continuity of the service, could still be a notifiable um, event. So assuming that the UK and the EU reforms are implemented as they are planning to be, the result will be quite a significant divergence. And that's a new divergence between the UK and the EU in relation to cybersecurity laws. With the UK focusing on technology companies, essentially treating them as critical infrastructure. Thank you, David. Um, something which I find particularly fascinating when we're talking about the original NIST directive and NIST 2 is how this notion of criticality has shifted and how the idea of criticality is embedded into each of the directives and how that's changed between then and now. Um, Dave, coming to you, in your experiences with clients, how has the NIST directive historically affected organizational approaches to cybersecurity? Thanks, Ayala. I think for me, and, and as Stuart mentioned earlier, NIS was certainly overshadowed by, by GDPR, maybe the, 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 the sexier regulation that came out around the same time, if, if anyone's actually ever said that before. However, one of the things about this was it was a real forcing function in order to get industry to pay attention to cybersecurity risk. Uh, one of the things I think we'll have seen over the last couple of years is um, the regulations tried to keep up with some of the themes that businesses are worried about. Uh, and I would suggest things, uh, attacks like the Gisei attacks last year, solar winds, have really forced the concentration in a slightly different manner. And we needed regulation that could adapt to cope with things like cybersecurity supply chain risk. And this supply chain theme was not only something we see within the proposed changes to the uh, UK's uh, NIS, but also the EU Digital Operation and Resilience Act. Uh, now, as, as I said, you know, one of the great advantages of legislation like this is it forces a board to take note and to consider cybersecurity risk in a way that's more than just an IT thing. Not taking this seriously has led to increased regulatory scrutiny. And that's definitely something that we've seen with some of our clients. And, and not taking that seriously can consume that scarce resource that you have. Not only the um, the IT and security resource, but also your um, your legal counsel, and clearly with that comes um, a very quick financial impact, and also you know a, a reputational risk as well. Uh, we've seen a real divergence, I would suggest, in terms of how organisations have have addressed this. You know, some have taken this very seriously and have gone through. Others maybe a bit more of a light touch 
and certainly at the smaller scale, we've seen a bit of confusion about whether an organisation would be uh, considered to be under the, the, the NIS. Some of the things that are coming up in terms of concern from them, I would suggest the changing in terms of thresholds, so moving away from that sort of numerical threshold to something of a more risk-based indicative or relative thresholds, uh, where you're looking more at you know, service functionality, information processed and recoverability. So there's, there is divergence, there's, um, there's a lot happening. As we mentioned, we've got other legislation coming in, in around the same time again. So for those companies that are operating in multi-jurisdictions, I think that's gonna be quite difficult. Maybe one challenge they would throw back though would be, uh, you know, there was mentioned earlier about the, the threat of a fine of up to 17 million, but with NIS, maybe unlike GDPR, we've not really seen that enforced to the same extent. Thanks, Dave. And those changing thresholds that you mentioned are actually a perfect segue into our next topic of discussion. Now, given the expanded scope of the new directive, we now have numerous companies who will be subject to the mandates represented by NIS2 who weren't previously under such regulatory scrutiny. Let's call them the NISD newbies. So examples of businesses who fall into this new essential and important entities category include entities within, for example, waste and water management, courier services, a broader range than ever of healthcare providers, and public administration organizations. Stuart, based on your experiences in preparing clients for the original NIS directive, what advice would you give to these NISD newbies? To pick up on a point that, that I think Dave just mentioned, which is to some, some clients that we have worked with perhaps haven't taken their obligation under NIS as seriously as perhaps they should have done. And, and therefore, I think my starting point would be to if uh, you as a, an organisation feel like you might be captured by the new NIS 2 regulations, to consider that carefully and take appropriate steps to um, consider what those obligations are. And working out whether you are caught by those regulations will involve an assessment as the, the definition and the thresholds and, and so on within the new um, requirements, and then considering who the appropriate competent authority is. And that sort of scoping exercise is, is, is always the starting point. And the hoping that with NIS2 and, and any changes in, in the UK, that the guidance available to these NIS2 newbies um, will be uh, more developed than perhaps those that came before for the original NIS directive were, were blessed with. I think one of the criticisms of content authorities was that it took them some time in those first couple of years to develop the guidance that quite reasonably the operators of essential services needed to understand their obligations, what they had to do in that relevant sector. Hopefully that guidance is now available and therefore turning to identify what guidance is available and look at it considering how it impacts your organization is really important um, and it's not just regulatory guidance there are all sorts of other really helpful materials available so in the UK the um, National Cybersecurity Centre um, is effectively charged with producing the framework by which um, organizations need to assess their NIS compliance. There is a um, cyber assessment framework available um, and therefore looking for those kind of materials and working out how that impacts your, your NIS assets is an important first step of that scoping exercise and there'll be equivalent guidance and materials available in other jurisdictions. And then that, that the really tricky bit that we have helped clients with and it can be quite an extensive exercise is mapping out which of your assets are caught within the scope of 
NIS, NIS2. So it isn't everything, it isn't every IT system. So it may well be that your HR systems or ERP systems are not caught by NIS. It is those NIS that underpin the, the essential service. Um, so working out which come within the scope of NIS and which don't enables you then to take those necessary steps. Um, and then there's, there's, there's all the sort of good hygiene that goes with um, a good, robust cybersecurity posture that then tucks in behind this. It's thinking about your supply chain, ensuring the supply chain is aware of its obligations if you are now caught by, by NIS2 as a NIS2 newbie. Uh, and think about your internal governance, ensuring that you have in place the right governance structures, the right instant response plans that deal specifically with NIS-related obligations, as well as more wider cyber data protection considerations. Um, probably my, my closing point here is, is not to underestimate the amount of work that that can involve. It can be quite an extensive exercise. Uh, it can involve significant resource and finding appropriate qualified cyber resource is a challenge in this particular climate um, and therefore giving thought to who, who will do that job at an early stage is important. Um, lots, to, lots to consider. Lots to consider, absolutely. Thank you, Stuart. Dave, do you have any advice for these newly regulated entities? I'm going to add very little to, to what Stuart's already said. So I think there's, there's just two things I would suggest. One of those is just check. Don't get caught out. Um, use the tools provided to understand whether you are indeed impacted. The second is maybe, I think this is a two-way conversation. So if you are um, one of those organisations that sits quite happily as critical national infrastructure or essential services, I think there's a duty there that you need to be discussing with your own supply chain to make sure that they're not going to get left out of this. And especially, you know, some of those maybe smaller firms, those managed services that provide into um, essential essential providers or critical national structure, I think it would be very easy for those to be left out. So I think it's a two-way conversation. Thank you, Dave. Some really interesting and important points there. So as we've now covered the existing and also the proposed legislation in our discussion so far, I'd like to throw out one final question to all of you about looking to the future. How do you think this proposed legislation will impact businesses on a day-to-day -day basis and what might we be able to expect from a governance perspective? For, for me, I think topics like ESG and cybersecurity are clearly front and centre for a lot of boards, uh, something they're really concerned about. And so one of the recommendations I would have within um, the organisation is to work on the, the relationships between the board and um, like CIOs, CISOs and the like. So there's a really sound collective understanding of how important it is to manage these sorts of regulations and more importantly, maybe the, the relationship with the regulator. Um, I would suggest this really help in terms of integrating cybersecurity risk into the overall enterprise risk management program or ESG initiatives. Uh, but when I think about a lot of this, the, the real driver here is about cybersecurity risk and preventative or proactive things that you can do because you know, incident response is, is difficult. It's really difficult. And therefore, um, our advice is it's really important to practice, to rehearse. Uh, and that resilience comes from and involves more than just testing the IT team. It's about penetration testing. It's about tabletop exercising. It's about red teaming. It's about bringing the organization together and understanding critical processes. And then more importantly, taking the time to learn and improve. 
we, we talked earlier about that sort of supply chain risk. So I'd suggest it's really important to manage through third parties in terms of how many of those have access to your data, the criticality of their output, how this output's validated, um, how you assure that, uh, and sort of those contractual arrangements that you have in place to protect. Um, so therefore, it's really vital to understand the entire value chain. But with all of this, I'd suggest there's a huge opportunity, and especially for CISOs, um, with increasing controls from governments and regulators, there's a momentum there that a CISO could use to pursue their, their cybersecurity um, objectives. Thanks, Dave. Um, David, do you have any comments on how effectively this is likely to be governed? Yeah, so first, completely agree with what Dave said. Um, rehearsal and simulation is, is absolutely key here. So it's quite clear from recent decisions of the ICO, that's the Information Commissioner's Office, that they're getting a lot tougher on businesses that are not ready to deal with a cyber attack. And the ICO is very clearly highlighting that cyber is a known business risk and therefore businesses should prepare for an attack. As a result of that, it's completely critical that businesses consider and prepare a cyber instant response plan. Organizations need to know what are the roles and skills that they will need to gather to deal with the cyber crisis, both internally and externally. What regulatory obligations will likely be triggered in the event of a cyber attack and what do they need to do to comply with those regulatory obligations? And that's across all the regulatory regimes that might apply to them, not just under GDPR, but under FCA, if you're financial services regulated or Ofgem, if you're in the energy business, etc. Um, and also you need to understand where your organization's data is held so that you can identify quickly what data might be at risk if certain systems have been compromised in an attack. You might also sensibly want to have a view on what your organization's policy would be in relation to ransom payments, although I would suggest you don't want to publish that. And also you should be thinking what and understanding the legal ramifications of potentially engaging with an attacker. Can you do that lawfully? What about money laundering? What about potentially funding? terrorist activities or, 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 or sanctioned entities. There's a lot to think about there. And it's not something that you want to be doing in the heat of the moment of dealing with a live cyber attack. So as I say, it's imperative that you complete an instant response plan, and this should complement any existing wider risk or crisis management plan and policy that your business has. And as Dave says, rehearse this. You want to increase the muscle memory that you obtain so you know more instinctively what to do in a cyber situation. Thank you, David, and thank you for those comments. There is so much to consider in everything that you've said, but one of the central points that I've really taken from the discussion is that proactivity is really the key to preparedness here. David, Stuart, and Dave, thank you so much for joining me today, and thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this discussion, remember to subscribe to our podcast series so that you don't miss out on future episodes. If you'd like to find out more about what we do here at FTI Cybersecurity and how we help build resilient futures for clients, please reach out to myself or any of today's guests via the FTI website. Mm -hmm.